Uh, one of our practices here is to try and preach through books of the Bible to make sure that it's, it's the Bible, original Christianity, setting the agenda uh, rather than just whatever pops into my head week by week. So we're looking today at Matthew's Gospel and chapter 22. Uh, just to say this is, the, this is going to be the end of our Matthew series, at least for a while. I'm going to do this, put it up. Is that better? There we go. Um, uh, end of our Matthew series for a while. In December, we're going to turn and... Um, uh, think about Christmas, basically. So we're going to have three weeks in the run-up to uh, run up to Christmas, uh, thinking about um, Jesus, who he is, what he's come to do. And there'll be great services to invite people along to. If perhaps somebody's not been to church for a long time or ever, um, hopefully there'll be good kind of entry services for, for folk. Um, so do, uh, do invite people along. Uh, it might be worth saying, too, that on the, the Sunday after Christmas, we're not going to meet because we did a poll. I think there was one person who was going to be here. Um, so I'm really happy to chat with that person. Uh, we'll have them a call on that day, but I think it probably isn't worth running a service for one person. Um, we'll follow uh, with more details as to other good services in the, in the location or in and around. So Matthew 22. And Jesus is in the middle of a debate with various religious leaders. We'll pick it up at verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and planned how to entangle him, that's Jesus, in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? They said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Therefore, render, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. Let me pray briefly before we come to think about that passage. Father God, uh, you give, you've given us your word as a, a seed to bear fruit. And so we pray that as it's sown today, that it will bear fruit in our lives, 20, 40, 60, 100 fold. Uh, grant us, we pray, both understanding and acceptance. If we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I wonder if you've heard the uh, saying, if you want to start an argument, talk about religion or politics. If you want to start a war, talk about both. Well, so what are we going to start a war? Or rather, it's a war that Jesus has already started, or the Pharisees have already started. In verse 15, we meet the, the Pharisees, who are not actually a professional group in Israel at the time. They're a, a, they're, they're a sort of a loose association of people who thought that they were the only ones taking religion really seriously. Okay, they were the ones who looked down their noses at everybody else. They're kind of half-baked um, you know, half believers who aren't really trying their best. Uh, they're the kind of people who thought that if, if we just, um, if everyone could be as good as we are, then the world would be a better place. And Jesus has had a lot to say to them. Primarily, you're not as good as you think you are. And like everybody else, you need forgiveness. You need mercy. And they hate him for it. They absolutely hate him. And the last couple of chapters of Matthew's gospel have basically been a series of arguments between Jesus and these religious leaders who are so pleased with themselves and think it's ridiculous that anyone would come to Jesus and ask for forgiveness. 
And the Pharisees keep losing. Okay, and when you keep losing, what do you do? Well, to see what they do. Uh, they make some new friends. They go in verse 16 and send their disciples to him. Okay, he keeps beating us. It's a bit humiliating. So we'll send our trainee Pharisees. Okay, and at least we won't be humiliated. But they're still at Jesus. And they've teamed up this time with the Herodians. Now that is a really weird group uh, of, of people to come together. Uh, the Herodians, you might remember King Herod. There were various King Herods in the Bible, actually. It was a bit of a dynasty. Um, they were really not super religious people. Okay, remember, the, the, Herods, the, the father of the Herod we're talking about here was the one who slaughtered all the children in Bethlehem. Okay, not a notably good religious act. But these, guys are, these guys are baddies. Okay? And yet, the super religious, we're really good people, and the Herodians, the kind of, we just want power, they, they both come together in order to attack Jesus. They totally hate each other, but will come together in order to get rid of him. Uh, this is kind of Leeds United and Derby County fans coming together because nothing is worse than Nottingham Forest. It's that sort of territory. And so they set a trap. Uh, they butter him up first. And, and, and ironically, what they say about Jesus is true. We know you're true. We know you teach the ways of God. You wouldn't sort of duck out of a question. You're not scared of what people think. Now, that's true. But they don't mean it. They're just trying to paint him into a corner. And so they, they lay the trap in verse 17. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, that might not seem like a huge trap. Okay, if someone came in this morning, interrupted the service and said, look, um, Peter, as he's leading, is, is it lawful to pay taxes or not? It doesn't seem like much of a, a trap, does it? Yes, it is. It's fine. Let's keep going. But what we need to remember is that the Jewish people at the time, it's the land of Israel, uh, who were God's chosen people, uh, who, who throughout the Old Testament had had their own kings, uh, had been independent of sort of foreign governing powers. At this stage, had been, had been conquered by the Romans. So they were just a province. Imagine sort of Hitler had swept across, not just Europe, but across Britain as well, conquered us. And then the question came up, is it right to pay taxes to the Nazis, knowing what we do about the Nazis and what they do with their money? The reason it's a trap is that it seems to the Pharisees' disciples, at least, that if Jesus says, yes, you should pay your taxes, then he'll lose, well, lose all respect in the eyes of the Jewish people. Oh, you're a collaborator. Okay? You're happy funding the Nazi government. On the other hand, if he says, no, don't give money to those Romans, you know what they do. Well, then the soldiers who are all around would simply arrest him. And that would be the end of Jesus. It seems like a perfect trap. Whichever way Jesus steps, snap. He's in trouble. But as usual, Jesus is smarter than the Pharisees. Verse 18, aware of their malice, said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. Uh, already, by the way, Jesus has shown up the Pharisees somewhat. Uh, these coins... Uh, this denarius, it's, it's, a, it's a Roman currency. Okay? So it's not local Jewish money, it's the Roman currency. And various, particularly amongst the Pharisees, but various Israelites thought that, 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 this, that the coins themselves, and certainly any idea of paying them to the, to the Romans, uh, was a sign that you'd abandoned your, your true faith. You were compromising. Now, we don't think I should have bought coins with me to, to show you children. But children, when you look at the, a coin, do you know whose face is on the coin? Yeah, Johnny. 
Queen Elizabeth. That's it. Queen Elizabeth. Our Queen's face is on the coin. Okay, and it's got a little inscription as well about the various things you know, she's done and how great she is and all the rest of it. Um, so it's got her face on it. And, and in those days, in the Roman Empire, the, the, the same system worked. But of course, it wasn't Queen Elizabeth. It was, it was the governor. Uh, sorry, the Caesar, the emperor. But unlike our queen, okay, the, 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 the emperor had a huge opinion of himself. And so inscribed on the coin, and in these days it would be Tiberius, Tiberius Caesar. Caesar's like the title, like king. Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. So the emperors were basically claiming to be oh, divine, gods themselves. And on the flip side would be a picture of a Roman goddess, usually the goddess Peace, Pax, uh, and the words the high priest. In other words, that the coins were totally blasphemous. They were saying, look, the Roman emperor is the true God, the true son of God, in fact. And the true priest, the true way to, uh, to appease the gods and, and you know, have eternal life is through the, the Roman system. Now, that's total blasphemy, isn't it? Yeah, that would be abhorrent, absolutely abhor- abhorrent to any Jew. And so many of them thought that even just holding the coins showed that you were holding a little God. It'd be like a coin today that said, um, there is one true God, Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. How comfortable would you feel about having it in your pocket? And the irony is, Jesus doesn't have any on him, but as soon as he says, well, give me one of these coins then, the Pharisees reach in their pockets and pull one out. <laughs> That's why he says, you hypocrites. Don't pretend you're actually that pure. Uh, but then he gives this answer, this one, probably one of the most famous phrases Jesus ever uttered. Uh, Verse 21, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. That one verse has spawned not just billions of sermons like we're having this morning, but volumes and volumes of political theory, uh, volumes and volumes of of lectures and writings on the relationship between religion and politics. Uh, One short sentence and yet so much to say. We're going to be necessarily, therefore, uh, very brief this morning. Uh, two things, basically, Jesus says. Uh, first is honour the government. Okay? Christians are to honour the government. Uh, verse 20. Uh, he asks the Pharisees, whose likeness, whose image is on the, is on the coin? And they give the right answer. Uh, it's Tiberius's, it's Caesar's. And therefore he says, well, render to Caesar. Now, it's not the kind of word you use anymore, is it? Um, rendered Caesar. I think it's been kept in our modern English version like that because it's, it's become so famous. But, but literally, it, it just means give back. And, and Jesus is, is, is deliberately using a different word than the Pharisees used in their question. Now, it's slightly hidden in, in the ESV, the, one that, that's, uh, the version of the Bible is on your, on your seats. So in verse 17, um, tell us then what you think. Literally, they say, is it lawful to give taxes to Caesar? It's not a special pay word, just give. And Jesus said, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's. In other words, don't think of this, paying your taxes, as if it's um, you taking something that belongs to you and giving it of free will to Caesar. No, this whole system is his anyway. Just give back to him what is his. The coin's got his image on it. The whole monetary system, in fact, the whole government system you're living under, which is exemplified by the coin, is his. So just give back to him. Pay your taxes. Now that's a, a word straight away to the kind of purists. I think all the way through the history of the church, there are those who would follow in the tradition of the Pharisees and think that somehow, once you become a Christian, 
Okay, once you follow Jesus as king, then, well, really, we ought to disassociate ourselves from the the world. Uh, Why should I pay my taxes to a government I don't believe in? Why should I pay my taxes money, uh, knowing they're going to use it in all sorts of ways that I just don't approve of? But Jesus says to the purists, no, just pay your taxes. Remember, the government at this time were not, (laughs) they were not good guys, as it were. I mean, it obviously wasn't a democracy. You didn't vote in Caesar. And if you were a, a Jewish citizen, you certainly didn't vote in. These were the guys who conquered you. Uh, they would use this money, no doubt, to do all sorts of terrible things, as well as some good things. At the end of the day, Jesus is saying, pay tax. Pay tax to a system that in about three days is going to execute me. That denarius in your pocket might be the one that ends up in a couple of weeks' time in the pocket of the centurion who on Friday is going to execute me. And still you pay the tax. We're not meant to be these super purists who try and disassociate from the world. Jesus recognises the authority, therefore, of earthly governments. Now, there are good governments and bad governments, and you don't need to know much about history to know there are times when there have been terrible governments. We're very fortunate in Britain. You may or may not have voted for the Conservatives in the last election. Um, You may or may not like their policies. You might have quite strong political feelings one way or another. But I do think it sort of behoves us as Christians to calm down a little bit uh, and think, you know, whatever my personal leanings, we are incredibly fortunate to live in the country we live in. We don't get out of bed in the morning worried about warfare. We don't worry about secret police knocking on our door. Uh, We might prefer a tax system tweaked this way, an education system changed that way, an NHS funding model a different way, whatever it may be. But ultimately, we're incredibly blessed. A civil government, if you like, the government of, of the country, the nation. Well, it is set up ultimately by God for our good doesn't mean that everything they do is always good of course it doesn't Uh, just like uh, the rest of us they can rebel but as christians we are meant to honor it uh, obey them respect them and very specifically here pay our taxes i think by the way that that principle extends out Uh, again sometimes some christians get a bit like the conscience is is so sort of so tender uh, so worried that that something you do might help someone else do something bad um, that, that we always feel like we've got to withdraw from the world. Perhaps you work in a company and you're aware that the company uses some of the profit they make um, to, I don't know, fund charities you don't agree with. Or um, it goes to the big boss man who you know is a total scoundrel. Well, to be blunt, I think a little bit of what Jesus is saying is that that's life in the world. Okay, we're not all meant to run away and I don't know, live in a monastery in the countryside somewhere in a sort of pure system. Honour the government. Honour the government, but secondly, to Jesus, honour the government, but worship God. Render, give back to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God, are you give back to God the things that are God's. Now, do you see how they react to that in verse 22? When they heard it, they marvelled, they were amazed at the answer. And they left him and went away. They were amazed. Why were they amazed? Okay, hasn't Jesus just said, yeah, pay your taxes? It's fine. That that doesn't seem a particularly amazing answer, does it? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Yeah, I'll give back to Caesar. What is Caesar? Yeah, pay taxes. But but these men are amazed. Why are they amazed? They're amazed, I think, by the the, the twist in the second half of the sentence. 
Jesus is, as usual, a little bit cleverer than perhaps we might first realise. Look at the look at the coin, says Jesus. Whose image is on it? The emperor's. Right, we'll give it to the emperor. And give to God's what is God's. What's he implicitly saying? Well, how do you know the coin belongs to the emperor? It's got his image on it. So if something has an image on it, it belongs to that person. Okay. Uh, I was at school, I was at posh school, as some of you know, uh, boarding school. Uh, you probably could tell if you didn't know. Uh, and everything had to have your name written on it. Okay, so I've still got some shoes. At the Maisley, they've survived 20 odd years now. Still got some shoes that got my name sewn inside them uh, that I occasionally wear for a walk in Roundhay Park. Everything had my name sewn on it. All your kind of sports kit, all your clothes, all the rest of it. Um, your name printed on it. Well, the kind of Jesus is saying the same thing with images. Okay, if, if someone's image is on it, okay, if instead of writing my name on all my stuff, my mum would take, oh, back in the day, taking a photo and sort of stuck it on my shoes or whatever. Okay, you'd know they belong to me. The coin belongs to Caesar. So what are you to give to God? Well, I'll give to God anything that's got his image stamped on it. You say, well, what's that? But the Jews knew, and that's why they're so amazed at the, at the cleverness, the way he's sidestepped the Pharisees. What is stamped with the image of God? Well, if you look around the world today, where do you see the image of God? Well, it's not in picture books. Jesus sort of story Bibles we give to kids. It's not in the great kind of icons of the Eastern Church. It's not in the, in the great paintings, the Renaissance. The image of God is stamped on each and every one of us. The Bible begins by saying, telling us that human beings are made in the image of God. That indeed is why we have value. We are not simply cosmic accidents that have grown up out of the swamp. Uh, we're not here because, um, simply because, X billion years ago there was a big explosion and just stuff happened that led to where we are today. Now I'm not this morning getting into the uh, whole discussion about science and Christianity, how they fit together. Um, It's just worth saying they're really not enemies. They're really not enemies at all. So I'm not trying to talk about the, the process, but all I'm saying is that human beings are here because God wanted them to be. How he made them, fight about that another time. Okay, we've got religion and politics this morning. We don't need creation and science as well. But the Bible tells us that human beings were made in the image of God. And therefore, what is Jesus saying in this passage? He's saying, yeah, give your taxes to Caesar, but give yourself to God. Give yourself, in fact, not give yourself to God as if it's really kind of you to give something. You know, if I came in this morning and I, oh, I really like it, here's a box of chocolates, that's undeserved. It's just a, a gift. But remember, it's not give, it's render, give back. In other words, you belong to God already, Pharisees. You belong to God already, Herodians. You belong to God already. Everyone sat here this morning. He has made you. He's put your image on you. His image on you, sorry. You have dignity and value. It is not just the survival of the fittest. It is not a dog-eat-dog world and may the best man win. It doesn't matter how brilliantly intelligent or really rather not intelligent you are. It doesn't matter how stunningly beautiful, uh, or, or perhaps not, <laughs> not the beautiful, most beautiful in the room. It doesn't matter what country you're from. It doesn't matter what colour your skin is. It doesn't matter how athletic you are. It doesn't matter how able-bodied you are. It doesn't matter what language you speak. Every human being bears the image of God. It is, by the way, very hard to ground human rights without that. Oh, we now, everyone now sort of says we all believe in human rights. No matter what, we, what religion you profess, we all believe in human rights. But human rights is, 
it's just a Christian concept that the modern world has sort of has grabbed hold of and tried to sort of pretend it didn't come from Christianity and ploughed on regardless. Where do you get human rights from on a kind of atheistic Darwinian system? Do the lions believe in lions' rights? Wasps believe in wasps' rights? All those wasps are created equal. Doesn't matter if you can't fly, you're valuable. Of course not. You can't fly, boom, you're dead. Can't run fast enough, right, I'll eat you. It's very hard to justify all human beings having value if we all just emerged from uh, this great cosmic accident. But anyway, you are owned, says Jesus, already. You need to give everything about yourself back to God. And this particular debate, this long-running debate between Jesus and the Pharisees, it's been going on for a couple of chapters worth of our Bible. He's therefore saying to the Pharisees, look, you keep trying to get rid of me, and I keep telling you that I am the Son of God. I've come to earth to rescue you. So if you want to give yourself to God, what do you have to do? You have to trust in me. Come, just find forgiveness. God is not asking a hard thing of you, Pharisees. He's not asking a hard thing of you all this morning, in fact. He's simply asking you to admit that you're not as you should be. You have not given yourself to God as you should have done. And to trust in his son. Now, Jesus is the only one who is the true image of God. He's described in exactly that language elsewhere in the Bible. The only one who shows us what God is really like. Now, he was a man, a true man, but he was also truly God. And only by looking at Jesus, therefore, can you see both what God is like. Do you ever wonder what God is like? Uh, do you ever fear that, that actually he might be totally terrifying? And you sort of like Jesus. Jesus seems kind and gentle and lowly. But God, well, no, Jesus is the image of God. He is is God in human form. When you look at Jesus, you are seeing what God is like. There is no trick, no deception, no hidden God behind Jesus. But he's also truly man. If you want to know what human beings are meant to be like, then again, you look at Jesus. He's the only one who's actually lived out that image of God. The rest of us, we're all scarred. Okay, we're, we're, you know, it's like... um, you know, some great painting, Michelangelo painting, but with graffiti on. Uh, we're scarred images, distorted images. You cannot look at, at me or um, your neighbour uh, sat next to you this morning and say, that is what a true human being, that's what a true man is. Okay, not even my wife would look at me and say, there's a true man. <laughs> but you can look at Jesus and see what you should be like. You'll see that you're not where he is, you're not where you should be. And yet Jesus, this perfect image, lays down his life, dies under the judgment that should have been yours in order that we might live. Give yourself back this morning to God, says Jesus. You don't have to pay. You don't have to pay tax. It's free. But come. And that might be an offer. If, if you're someone this morning who'd say, look, I, I'm, I'm not a Christian. And that, is the, that is the most important thing you, you need to hear. Okay, Christianity is not complex. You don't need to know, there's not billions of hidden rules out there to sort of small print and all the rest of it. It is about coming, finding forgiveness from Jesus, the true image, and then trying to live from him, for him rather, from then onwards. But there's one last thing I want to touch on before we go, uh, before we finish. Uh, we honour the government, we worship God, but Jesus, Jesus reminds us too that Caesar himself bears the image. Caesar himself bears the image of God. Perhaps the Pharisees after the exchange would say, oh, Jesus, so you're saying that Caesar, okay, he's totally okay 
the way he runs these brutal games and gladiators slaughter each other. Jesus, you're saying it's totally okay the way that they've swept across our country and uh, you know, essentially uh, conquered us. Jesus, it's totally okay the way they crucify criminals. You're, you're, you're in favor. Jesus said no. Uh, Caesar himself, Tiberius Caesar in, the, in, in these days, Caesar himself is a human being. He bears the image of God. So he himself is meant to give himself back to God. He himself is meant to bow the knee to Jesus. Jesus is reminding us, in other words, that no human authority, no human government or king or emperor or prime minister or president, none of them have ultimate authority. Uh, Yes, uh, God has given them some authority over a particular country or nation or county or town or whatever it may be, but they bear the image. And the image says you're a servant of someone far greater. Uh, There are limits, therefore, on the authority that any human being has. Uh, if we were to go elsewhere in the Bible, we'd see there are three main sort of structures that God builds the world around. There's the state, okay. nations as we call them a day. Um, that's what Caesar rules over. Okay. Or for us, prime ministers or presidents or kings or queens, whatever it may be. And there's a church where he puts elders uh, in authority to, 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 to look after them. And there's a family okay, where parents, and particularly the dad, is meant to take the lead. Three different institutions, but all under God. <laughs> So if you find yourself in a position of leadership, it doesn't mean that that, that, particular, um, uh, that particular kind of kingdom you're, you're looking after is your own fiefdom. You are meant to bow the knee to Jesus and rule as he would like you to rule. So, for example, if someone in authority over you, be it a church leader, uh, be it a, a, you know, a ruler of the, of the country, commands you to do something that God has said you shouldn't do, then of course you have to disobey them. Yes, there are loads of Bibles, verses in the Bible that say, obey your church leaders and obey the earthly authorities. But if they command you to do something that God has told you not to do, then you disobey. You get this in Acts very clearly. Uh, the earthly authorities, who are legit earthly authorities, the ones you pay tax, taxes to, uh, they tell the early church, you've got to stop talking about Jesus, just to stop it. And they say, judge for yourself whether it's right to obey God or man. No, I can't. I can't. Look, I really want to obey on all sorts of things. I'll drive on the left-hand side of the road. I'll keep to under 70 miles an hour. Um, you know, I'll pay my taxes. I'll, but I can't do that. And there are times when, as Christians, we will have to take that stand. And it will, no doubt, be costly. If you're commanded to sin, you must disobey because God is above Caesar. Uh, but equally, if, if Caesar steps out of his, his lane, as it were, and then there are times when we no longer have to obey. This is much trickier, I think. Let me try to illustrate it like this. I, I've, got, I've, got, I've got five children, okay, and with my wife, we decide when they go to bed. Okay, so whatever time, you know, seven o'clock, you've got to be in bed. And, you know, bad luck them, they are under my authority, like rule over the family. That makes it sound way more sort of domineering and way more efficient than it actually is, uh, way more effective. But anyway, you know, we're in charge, we say bedtime, seven o'clock, there we go. I am not allowed to go next door to, to, to our neighbour's house, Matt and Helen, and say, oh, your kids need to be in bed. Hey, kids, you need to be in bed at seven o'clock. No. I'm not commanding them to sit, am I? But I can't say, look, I'm a father, your children. You go to bed at seven o'clock. I say, no, you're not my father. Get back in your lane. Uh, nor can I walk in and say, look, to any of your houses, and say, look, uh, particularly those of you who are regulars here at Christchurch, I am your church leader. Look at all these verses that say, obey your leaders, Hebrews 13. Obey your church leaders. And I'm telling you, Monday night, you will only eat shepherd's pie. Tuesday nights, pizza. Wednesday nights, fish and chips. 
Now, am I commanding you to sin? Is it a sin to eat shepherd's pie, fish and chips, pizza? No. So if your only sort of understanding of authority is, well, I have to do what they say unless they're telling me to sin, then you might think, well, I'm going to have to do it then. But the problem there is I've stepped out of my lane. Yes, I'm a church leader, but that doesn't give me authority over your household. Uh, this is much trickier, and there's no way we can go into all the sort of details here. This is exactly the problems that COVID has raised, though. What, what are the limits of the government's authority? Are they allowed, for example, to say that everyone must vaccinate their children? Or actually, is that a decision for families? Are they allowed to tell the church you're not allowed to meet? Or is that a decision for elders? Are they allowed to command that everyone must wear face masks? Or is that actually them stepping beyond their remit? Now, I'm really sorry, but I'm not answering those questions this morning. I realise they're huge questions. They're just too big for me to try and answer. I'm really happy to talk about them, but they're difficult, they're tricky. But, but we cannot simply say that any time a government says, makes a law, that's it. We just must obey. And one of the things we, I think particularly as Christians at the moment we need to be careful of is thinking that, we, that the government is, is just a sort of neutral, totally fair secular, non-religious entity. Okay, it isn't. We know if we went to various Islamic countries, they would say we are an Islamic government. And we'd say, okay, that religion and politics are tightly mixed there. A temptation is to look at England or America or France, or sort of particular, you know, and say, well, we don't really have religious leaderships. But that's not true. They might not subscribe to one of the sort of big five or six world religions. But it's not true that secular governments, as they call themselves, are like the neutral referee on a football field. You know, all the religions have got their own funny little opinions they're playing, but we're just above it or we're the referee above it. Our, our governmental system is deeply religious. It has to be. Sometimes people say you've got to keep religion out of politics, you know, morality out of politics. They, they don't mix. But politics just is morality enforced on people. Uh, some of you know uh, Jake and, Jake and uh, Tash getting married next, uh, next year. Um, there's only two parts of a wedding service that are legal. Okay? Everything else is, is just fluff. It's important fluff. Okay? It's good. I'm a minister. I think they're good things. But it, there's only two points that make you legally married. First is the bit where you say, I, um, Jake, take you, Natasha, to be my lawful wedded wife. That, that, that has to be there. Okay? That's legal. But the other thing that has to be there is what's called the, the declaration of no impediment. You know, do you know the bit in the service where, does anyone here know any lawful reason why this man and this woman cannot be joined together in uh, holy matrimony, whatever the phrase is? You must have heard that. Now, what happens? Ne- okay, next year it's the wedding. We're all there. Uh, am I doing it or is your dad doing it? Uh, doing it. I'm doing it. There we go. Um, I, 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 I was either speaking or doing it. I couldn't remember which. Um, okay, so I, stand, I say that. Okay. I, I say that. And what happens? Uh, suddenly... Two, three, four, five, six girls get up and say, yes, I object. All these heartbroken women. And you say, why? Why do you object? No, because I love him. I love him. He's meant to be mine. And there's quite tears. And, you know, they're, they're streaming out. What, what am I meant to do as a minister? I have to say to them, I'm really sorry, but that is not a legal reason. Okay, that is not a legal reason. There are only two reasons. There are only two things you're allowed to say. Okay, if you want to stop Jake marrying Tash, there are two things you can say. One, he's already married. Or two, they're basically brother and sister, close relatives. That's it. Why those two things? Because in loads of countries in the world, they, that wouldn't stop marriages. Plenty of countries in the world, someone stands up and says he's already married. And the minister would say, good on him. Here's number two, or three, or four. 
But you know that, polygamy. Why is it? Well, because the government, our government, has taken a moral position and said, no, marriage can only be, be between, well, historically, one man and one woman. At the moment, it's, that's reduced to only between one person and one person. But that's another topic. That is, that is a moral position. That is imposed morality. Laws are that. Try walking out of the house naked and see what happens. Okay? They're not going to say, well, you know, you do your thing. No, you, there's going to be imposed morality on you. Driving without a seatbelt, all sorts of examples. Politics is moral. It is inescapably religious. And we need to be aware, therefore, that just because we live in a country um, where we can be thankful for so much, we don't want to be naive until Caesar, until the government say, yes, actually, do you know what? Jesus is Lord and I want to rule like a Christian, which, by the way, doesn't mean forcing everyone else to become Christians or anything like that. It just means ruling as a Christian secular ruler. OK, not, not as a, we don't want the government to become ministers. We're not trying to make them all sort of force everyone to go to church or everyone has to be a Christian or you all go to jail. None of that nonsense. But at least I'm trying to live under the lordship of Jesus. Until that happens, which, let's face it, isn't looking massively likely right now. Until that happens, it may well be the case that actually the church ends up being persecuted. I was in meetings just, just a couple of days ago. Um, hearing about a, a, a new consultation at the moment, but the, which will become law. The government said it's a consultation, but it will become law. Uh, banning what's called conversion therapy. That's a very sort of slippery term, conversion therapy. But basically the idea is we're going to ban um, any attempt um, to help someone um, say, look, I, I'm attracted to people of the same sex, but I, I don't want to go in that direction. Okay? So conversion therapy, which is very loosely defined, is any attempt to say, okay, uh, although you, you feel those desires, you shouldn't act on them. Now, conversion therapy used to just be about really horrible stuff we'd all want to see banned, kind of electrodes and all sorts of horrible stuff. Obviously, that's terrible. But now they want to include what they call talking therapy. Um, so, a couple of quotes from the, the material. It's likely that legislation will make it illegal to provide spiritual support in line with the historic Christian sexual, er sexual er ethic to under-18s. Someone in youth group says, look, I, I, I'm same-sex attracted. Um, what, is, what does the Bible say about that? You say, well, you know, okay, gently say, look, we're all, we've all have, we all have desires that are wrong and it doesn't make you any worse than everyone else, all the rest of it. But that is, they are not desires you, you should follow through if you want to follow Jesus. You're now engaged in conversion therapy and could be prosecuted if these laws go through. But when Jesus is brought, the woman who's caught in adultery, and the Pharisees say, let's stone her, and Jesus gets rid of them because they're hypocrisy. But he says at the end, go and sin no more to the woman. Because he's gentle, he's kind to her, he doesn't want a stone. She's been committing adultery, but he obviously doesn't say, adultery's fine. No, he's go and sin no more. That would be conversion therapy. And he'd be arrested. Uh, in, in Australia, in the state of Victoria. Uh, this has come in. Again, any practice that seeks to change or suppress sexual orientation or gender identity is outlawed, including prayer-based practice. Offenders face up to 10 years in prison and a maximum fine of over £100,000. The state attorney general said church ministers will be re-educated by the state to prevent them breaking the law. British Conservative MP Alicia Kearns says the model that's been passed in Victoria is a good one. 
it's not great news, is it? I would really encourage you, by the way, to, to, to engage in this consultation. We'll send some stuff around about it um, in the next few days. It closes soon. I remember when I first went into ministry, I, I went in far too young, uh, stupidly young. Shouldn't have done it, but God's kind. Um, so I was in my 20s. And I remember hearing an older minister, I think now has died, but a very experienced minister, saying, oh, I asked him a question at a conference, said, what would you say to young ministers? He said, by the end of your ministry, you'll be in jail. And I remember thinking, that's, that's just, that's exaggeration. First time I've thought that might be true is in the last two or three days. We don't live under a neutral government. We simply don't. And so ultimately, we must remember that render to see the things that are Caesar's is tempered by render to God the things that are God's. Our ultimate authority is to him. God willing, things might change. We pray for a godly government. We give thanks for so much that's good about our government. But our Lord, he does lie above them if push comes to shove. And that's why it's such good news that uh, the God that we serve, even if it leads into all sorts of trouble, not just for ministers, I'm afraid it won't just be for ministers. If it does all go through, it's going to be for teachers, social workers, frankly, anyone. Um, who says anything at the wrong time uh, if you happen to get unlucky well thank god we serve a god who is kind that even if he leads us through dark times it is ultimately for our good we can trust him because well he's given his one true image his son for us uh, and for our sake uh, therefore even when we don't understand what's going on in our lives even if we do suffer we know it's not because he's abandoned us not because he doesn't love us he is a god who will forgive anyone who comes to him and will get them safely home the one true image, Jesus Christ, is the one place to look for certainty. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for sending a true image in Jesus Christ. We thank you that as you look at him, we know what you are like, what our God is like. And we see such mercy, such patience, such gentleness, such kindness with broken and indeed rebellious images like ourselves. And so we, once again, we want to ask you to forgive us our sin, forgive us our rebellion, restore the right image within us, we pray, make us more and more like Christ. And give us the courage, we pray, to live as faithful citizens of our God, come what may in this world. Bless us, strengthen us, and pour your spirit upon us, we pray in his name. Amen.